I'm Jess Binneth. And I'm Kate Montague. And this is the Audiocraft Podcast. But in this episode, we're doing something a little bit different. We're sharing something from our mates over at the Third Coast International Audio Festival. This was recorded at their 2017 conference. The session is called The Confessional, When is a Personal Story Worth Sharing? It features two gun producers, Sally Herships, an award-winning journo based in New York, and Alan Hall, the founder of Falling Tree Productions in London. Is anyone here wondering if they should tell a personal story? Have you ever, ever wondered? Okay, yeah. Or do you wonder if you might wonder? Maybe you're wondering about wondering if you might wonder. Um, so we're going to talk about what makes a personal story worth telling. And we're doing this because it seems really timely, right? There are all these podcasts popping up. And we're very open to having a discussion about it afterwards. So we would encourage you to ask questions and share thoughts when we're done. But first, uh, Sally and I are going to share an experience we had um, making a program. We're going to kind of perform an autopsy or an anatomy on a, a program that we worked on together, a program. I'm going to speak English, sorry, a documentary. Um, and it's the story, uh, we're going to tell you the story of how Sally and I came to make and how the uh, British Broadcasting Corporation came to broadcast a highly personal meditation on loss. The program, or the documentary, is called As Many Leaves. It was broadcast on BBC uh, Radio 4 in a general feature slot, and it, was, it is half an hour long. Uh, but along the way uh, in the next hour, we're also going to reflect on bigger questions of when to tell a personal story, and I guess we'll also touch on when not to tell a personal story, and a few thoughts about how you might tell a personal story. And then beyond that even, um, we're going to perhaps tap into a kind of higher ambition as to what it is that we do. What is the purpose of story building, storytelling? In case you haven't heard, how many, has anyone here heard As Many Leaves? Okay, that's cool. Wow. All right. All right. So in case you haven't heard As Many Leaves, uh, something bad happened to me a few years ago, and this is the story of that bad thing. So I'm just getting home from seeing my friend and I was just thinking as I walked in the door, it's just incredibly sad to come home late at night alone. I used to walk in and Adnan would be here waiting for me and it's just so sad. It's just heartbreaking and I know he is never going to be here again waiting for me because I changed the locks so so what happened was Adnan is my ex-husband and he left he left me very unexpectedly and told me via email uh, with with no explanation and I never saw him again almost um, and so that you don't get distracted, no, I really, really didn't know ahead of time. So uh, that's pretty grim, obviously. But in a way, it's kind of too, ba too bad for Sally. Um, bad things happen all the time. Uh, as a, a professional documentarian, program maker, producer, uh, we have to consider 
you know, we have to evaluate what makes or doesn't make a, a, a story worth telling, and that applies uh, perhaps more than ever to um, personal stories. Because for most of us, frankly, uh, the troubles we encounter don't amount to a, to a hill of beans. Um, and if a story is only likely to be of interest to our partners or our grands, then maybe we should think twice about uh, making it. And we, we just need to be able to answer that question, you know, should I tell a personal story? And quite possibly, the answer is going to be nah. So if you're, if you're taking notes, this is going to be, this is a great time to start. Um, I'm a teacher, you guys. I can't, I can't help it. Um, so challenge number one, imagine that you are in a bar with friends, or if you're me, maybe on the couch with a nice cup of tea uh, with your friends, and ask yourself honestly, is my story worth sharing? Um, what's in it for the listener? So my background is in the visual arts, so the way I always think of this distinction is the difference between a fine artist and a graphic designer. If you're a fine artist, you're painting for yourself. You only have yourself to please. If you're a graphic designer, you are creating work for somebody else. You are a paid hack. Uh, to my mind, it's um, the idea that an artist uh, will kind of expect the spectator or the, uh, the listener to step towards their work. Whereas uh, for those of us working in public radio, um, or perhaps even in podcasting, you have to lay out a kind of welcome carpet to the listener. Because we're not here to serve our own needs primarily. We're not here to indulge our own ideas or feelings. Uh, we have to bear in mind, not be dictated to by, but to bear in mind the needs of the listener. So when I was first thinking about the idea or the possibility of making a story, um, I talked to a really good friend, a super talented radio producer, um, someone I trust more than almost anyone else, and she said, that's a horrible idea. Lots of people get divorced. Why should you make a story about it? And that was, that was really great advice. And I have to say it was kind of my, my response as well. It's my instinct. Uh, when asked by anyone about making personal stories. And part of that is obviously my British reserve. You know, we don't sort of uh, necessarily lay out our, um, our, ourselves in that way. But also, you know, professionally, you have to think about the narrative. What is the narrative? What, what is the dramaturgy? That's what we say in Europe. Because um, we're telling true stories, but with the tools of fiction here. And we're turning real people's lives into kind of radio novellas. Um, and we have to think about those people. Challenge two, is this story even a story? Does it have legs? Um, and just like any other documentary subject, just like uh, any news story you might be pursuing, you need to evaluate, does it have legs? Or am I attached to it simply because it's mine, because it belongs to me? You have to ask why really should anyone else care? And why should it fill the airwaves? In this instance, why should it find a place in the schedule of the British, the mighty British Broadcasting Corporation? And this is what I asked myself when Sally first mentioned the idea. But here's how the story first turned into a story. So Alan and I were sitting in Madison Square Park. I had lent my voice to a production on graffiti, my New York City voice. And we were, I know, I'm super, I'm just super tough and urban like that. And so we were sitting on a bench and catching up. And Sally says to me, uh, she's been keeping an audio diary. Uh, she's been recording it since her husband walked out on her. 
and she has on tape, she's got reels and reels of tears and tears. And she doesn't know what to do with them. And she wonders whether Falling Tree might be interested to make one of its kind of Falling Treesy sort of um, featurey, documentary type sort of stories. Um, and this was the kind of material that she was suggesting. My new reality, Sunday night, donuts. Donuts and I'll probably become the size of the shelf at the store that holds the donuts or maybe the refrigerator. I think this is natural. I think this is one of the stages of heartbreak. I think there's the ice cream stage, the comfort food stage and the donut stage, but maybe Maybe they all fall under comfort food. I don't know. <laughs> I skipped the ice cream stage because I am lactose intolerant, so I can't really have ice cream. So I'm just making up for that with donuts. I guess I'm just feeling sorry for myself, which I guess is normal. I'm probably gonna listen to this at the end of the year and it's just gonna be nothing but tears, 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 and donuts. <laughs> I have to stop eating so many donuts. Um, when I recorded this tape, I had no thought of doing anything with it. This was, this was a diary. Um, I, I really I had no plan to share this with anyone, not to be in a room here with you. Um, but I felt a really strong urge to share my story, maybe the same urge that some of you have had, right? Something huge in my life had happened. I wanted to commune with others, to process it. Um, and so the first thing I did after Ann Hepperman thankfully stopped me from eating the donuts. We had a donut intervention. Thank you, Ann. Um, I tried out a short, non-narrated montage version. I wanted to see what it was like to play this tape in a room with other people. So I played it at a live storytelling night in New York City. And I wanted to know if it would be okay or weird. Um, and it was, it was weird, but it was also okay. And, and then when it came to the uh, idea of pitching it to, to the BBC, uh, Sally had to convince me, first of all. And my immediate reaction was uh, that it felt too close in time to the events, that the, the material was too raw. Um, so I had a kind, of concern for Sally, a kind of concern for Sally, as well as seeing the potential, possibly. I also felt it was, um, it was too American for a British audience. You know, it's not terribly British to do this kind of thing. Um, as I say, we've got these stiff upper lips um, and we don't do personal in um, what I think of as that sort of overly generous way that Americans might have but within within all that <clears throat> within within the heartbreak within the self-pity within the self-regarding <laughs> and the navel-gazing I'll stop um, I could sense I could sense there was potential there was potential for a story a story that faced outwards a story that wasn't um, just kind of about Sally. And there was a trigger to this, and this, um, this was the donuts. Or at least it was the specificity of the donuts. I'm thinking back to Brian Reed, was it yesterday, who talked about this? And also maybe Jad and his kind of little, little shit. Somebody said the way an English person says little shit sounds derogatory. When Americans can say it, but a British person can't. Anyway. Um, so. Uh, there was something in, that, in the specifics of that detail that potentially made it universal, made it more than a story just about 
just about Sally. So I recognized that there was this, this raw, human, close, personal story with amazing intimate, intimate access. Challenge number three, do you have specific, specificity? Uh, uniqueness of detail and proximity. When I was keeping my diary, I brought my recorder with me everywhere. I needed it, it was my crutch, it was my tool to process the horrible moments I was going through. So I, it was with me when I was capturing all these mundane details, when I cleaned out the clothes when, that Adnan left in the closet, when I cleaned out the kitchen cabinets and threw away the cans of tuna fish and the bottles of spices that he left, I had my recorder with me. Uh, like we say in the story, it's not always the moments of high drama. Um, it's these, these little bits of everyday life, the, the mundane details, and that are the hardest. And I needed my recorder to help me get through. Yeah, so I felt we were in business, really. Um, and we could make, we could conceive of a close meditation on something universal enough that would chime even with... Um, a slightly skeptical British listenership. And so the next step was uh, to do what we always do in feature making, which was to try and ensure that there was a space within this story for the listener. Is it participatory? No, how do I say it? Participatory. Participatory, yeah. Participatory. Is there a space, is there a space in this story for, for the listener? So Alan very, very meekly as is his way, suggested um, that one way to help with that would be to introduce characters who could participate in the story in the same way a listener might. Um, and so challenge number four on your lists is ask yourself, is there a place for the listener? Uh, because this is going to turn potentially, if you've got that, um, if you've got that participatory story, um, uh, this is place. not hard, actually. <laughs> I can't do it. Uh, you can potentially uh, turn what might otherwise be a me cast into an us cast. Um, it's 9.30. So, I'm out with my friend Stacy. Hi! Hi, it's Stacy. And we were... <laughs> and we were just talking about dating and that it doesn't have to be horrible and scary. No! no. It can be really great and fun and exciting and romantic and great. So I think I'm going to try, or at least I'm going to try to make an online dating profile. Yes, yes, go forth, do it, yes. Um, what Stacy said was not true, just FYI, dating really sucked. Uh, but some clips worked, and then there were other clips that needed to be added, like that, and then there were clips that needed to be cut, that Alan needed to cut. Yeah, and um, this is where uh, my role, and, and before me, my colleague Eleanor, who also helped work on this uh, in the meantime, um, had to be kind of merciless editor, suggesting uh, not just what, what might be in, brought into the program, but what might have to sort of fall by the wayside. So if a clip or a scene resonated, I, I, I felt only within Sally's world, then I found it excluding. It wasn't inclusive. It didn't provide that space for the listener. And I needed it to, whatever the clip was, to resonate in my world as well. Because um, I, in a sense, was um, a representative of the audience. 
And, um, and if I found myself struggling to understand what was going on or to what the joke was about or who a character was or what the nuance of what they were saying was, then I'd, I'd suggest we cut it, as I suggested we cut this. I'm making, a, I'm making an audio diary. Happy New Year. Happy New Weird. Happy New Fears. Happy New Steers, Beers. Do you have any New Year's resolutions? I don't do resolutions, but I do have a lot of projects that will be completed this year. Yeah? Yeah, for sure. That was, that was a great clip, Alan. <laughs> that was a clip of me and my friend Selden. We were at a New Year's Eve party, and it's a perfect example of the kind of tape that made sense to me because I was there. It was a friend of mine. Um, I'm in my own life, and um, I knew what was happening, um, but it didn't work so well for maybe almost anyone else. So, um, challenge number five, uh, you need to do the, the me or the us test, the me cast or the us cast test. Because um, <clears throat> if this had been a me cast, uh, a story Sally was telling for herself, really, it would have been, it would have been fine. But I, I was listening uh, with the ears of an audience that wasn't there and that, was only, that only has the clues that we present within the program, within the documentary. Um, to work on, really. The other thing is that the clip that we just played of Stacy, I had almost nine hours of tape. Um, and most of the tape was just me, uh, which isn't that interesting. And what makes it even more kind of boring and pitiful was most of it was just me crying, like when my mom came to stay with me after Adnan left and she brought Daisy the dog and then they left and I was really sad, so I turned on my recorder and cried more. Um, and figuring out what was boring or not boring was not a job I could do myself, right? I did not have that ability. We can't step outside ourselves. Um, luckily, I had Alan to provide perspective, an editor. And uh, to make this a documentary, really, that reached out to listeners, we came up with uh, a couple of ideas um, of weaving in different textures and different voices. In particular, we brought in two kind of one wholly new character, but two new characters in supporting roles. And we'll get to the second shortly, but the first of these characters involved me asking, as my, in my role as editor, if you like, of um, uh, Sally to consider something really quite painful. It's weird. Okay, now. Wait, I want to see if this thing does it. Wait, can you say it first? See. No, no, I want to find this one Billy. first. We'll Billy. See, it's not registering. Look, when I talk, it doesn't, the levels aren't showing up. No, it's broken. Billy. Billy. Now you say it. Billy. And what does that mean? Cat. And how do you say dog? Here, listen. Cat. And here. Billy. <laughs> Kutta. Now you say it. Kutta. Kutta. Dog. Kutta. 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 Oh, it sounds like a rap song. No, play it in Hindi, don't... Bad kitty. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so that was my ex-husband, Adnan, uh, in a piece of raw tape. Uh, he was teaching me Urdu, and the first draft I turned into Alan didn't include any tape of Adnan because he was gone. He'd left. <laughs> and then Alan told me to go back and put that bit in. So challenge number six, 
does this story work as a solo effort, a single voice narrative, or does it need additional characters? I mean, clearly here, uh, it felt important to convey something of the context for this story, which meant conveying something of the life that Sally and Adnan had before it fell apart. So for us, for the loss to be understood, really, uh, and to be felt by listeners, to give them that reason to care, we had to know what it was that was being lost. So my role was to consider Sally and her story within the context of making any documentary feature and broadcast documentary. Alan, you said broadcast. I am so happy that you said broadcast. Um, the thing here is that when things are broadcast, listeners believe them just automatically. It's almost frightening um, how much trust people have in what they hear and see. And I have my own point of view as a human being, but as a human, as a storyteller, as a journalist, I also have a responsibility. And that is to tell a balanced and fair story, even if it is about someone who I, as a human, perceive as having done something that was maybe not terribly nice. And there's maybe a distinction here between uh, the old world of um, broadcast and then the possibilities that are offered by the podcast sphere. Uh, the podcast sphere, in a sense, is less mediated to a large degree. It's unregulated. And it potentially leaves room for a kind of um, journalistic carelessness, might I suggest, uh, which could be damaging intellectually, emotionally. So we're telling true stories with those tools of fiction, but there are real people who potentially are going to be collateral damage. We have to consider them. Yeah, as Alan would say, I was quite keen. I was, very, <laughs> I was very keen that Adnan be notified. As a journalist, as a storyteller, as a human being, I would not have gone forward with the story unless we notified him first. Yeah, because as far as I knew, let's face it, Sally might have been absolutely bonkers. She might have been making this whole thing up. Um, and so we, uh, Falling Tree, emailed Adnan, and we notified him of what our intentions were. Uh, and we felt he had to be given uh, the chance to respond. We needed to check the veracity of the story in one instance. We also needed to give him a chance to respond to that, to speak for himself, potentially even to have a role in the documentary. Yeah, so I would like to make a gentle plea to all of you here, to the audience, that we all be this careful and this responsible. Um, Adnan didn't answer, and he's not really in the story, uh, because ultimately, this was my story, and it was a story of loss. It was not a story about the specifics of a relationship. If we'd included all those tiny little he said, then she said, then he said, then she sent a text, then he said, you know, um, it would have been a totally different piece. Yeah, there was, there was no judgment expressed at all by Sally about her um, former partner. But we needed to open out this story. We needed, it, we needed to open it out from the axis of, 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 the, of, the, of the relationship, the marriage, um, and to give a broader context and to open it out for listeners, to offer points of access, to offer points that, things, moments that they could recognize, um, and to build a story that was bigger than that immediate experience. So the experience is a conduit for something else, which is a, something universal about loss. And this brings us to the second character, someone who was... Um, a witness to what had happened, uh, but also someone who could offer a sense of perspective. 
My Aunt Lucy. This is chicken and mushrooms and carrots and capers. Mm. Oh my God, thank you. It's going to hit the spot. Yeah. Growing up, I used to watch my Aunt Lucy make movies. She's a documentary maker, so telling personal stories in front of millions of viewers just seems like a natural thing to do. Do you also find comfort in this process? Well, I don't know that I'd call it comfort. What I find in picking up a camera and facing extreme situations is structure, purpose, meaning. And those things are comforting. So yeah, I guess the answer to your question is yes. Somehow, all that feels so overwhelming when I'm um, just facing life without my equipment suddenly becomes beautiful, meaningful, and part of a process. Like making this project means that I'm in a process of discovery, and therefore there's something I'm learning here and something I can share with other people as opposed to just experiencing the raw pain of it all. Um. Thank God for Aunt Lucy. She says all the things that I, she, and she's, yeah, she says all the things I just cannot find the words for. And she's just another example of why you cannot be your own editor. Uh, you don't, we, we just simply do not have the perspective. So Aunt Lucy says uh, structure, purpose, and meaning. She opens out this story to that sort of bigger aspect that I alluded to at the top, the nature and the purpose of storytelling. Aunt Lucy is sort of like one of us. She's like one of us listeners who's sort of found her way onto the set of this story. She's our surrogate, and she mirrors back and reflects back to Sally the misfortune that she's uh, in, uh, suffering. And she was recorded specially at um, our request, and that was one of the small contributions that uh, we made to, to this production. Um, because Sally was still in the midst of her loss, I mean, I could see that from the Skype and email communications that we had. So my role as editor was to help her see things um, as they really were, rather than how she felt they might be. And getting her to talk to her uh, aunt was almost like a therapeutic tool. It sort of, um, we crossed over, documentary maker crossed over into the story. That's true. And that's... um, another kind of vital tool, I think, in helping someone tell a personal story. You need that sounding board. So challenge number seven, do you have or do you need a person, a character who can reflect back to you how things actually are rather than how you would like to see them or hear them? And that's a general observation, I think, maybe to be made also about uh, another difference between Um, perhaps the professional broadcast world and the amateur me-cast world, that possibility of uh, an editorial hierarchy or an editorial coaching, not even if it's peer coaching. And uh, by the time we made this story, a couple of years had passed since Adnan had left, but even so, I could not and did not have the perspective I normally have as a reporter. And remember, I'm still living this. It's, It's my life. 
Whereas for me, it was all just material for a radio documentary, you know? <laughs> Uh, I do have distance. I can suggest that we stick things in or cut things out, um, that we, you know, use a bit of the ex-husband, that we find the aunt. And, I, you know, I could encourage the use of music. It didn't take much encouragement. We fortunately had a budget and we could uh, involve a composer. I have an almost embarrassing crush on a composer by the name of Nina Perry. I just, I, ugh, I love her music so much. And she and a cellist by the name of Danny Keene uh, composed the music for this. And so music was another tool in this production. Um, what the music did, so many things, um, it provided a, a way for me to communicate when I couldn't find the words um, to say things. like. I, when this first happened, I had this incredibly deeply sick, wrong feeling. And it's one thing for me to tell you that, it's another thing for the music to communicate it. So when the piece opens, it opens with a piece of tape from my uh, wedding, Indian wedding. And then you, if we, we're gonna play this and you're gonna hear the music come in and hear how things suddenly or, or, or turn bad and wrong in this sick, deep way. We got inside, and a garland of roses and white carnations was put around my neck. I looked out into the audience. I saw Adnan's family and all the women, his cousins and aunts, in their saris. They were so beautiful. They looked like butterflies. I still think that song is so pretty. Hey, sorry, Mr. Call. Um, call me back. I'm on my cell phone. Bye. Music was also a production tool. I would write something. Uh, the composers, Nina and Danny, would compose. I would hear the music. I would realize I'd done everything just wrong and badly. Um, I would rewrite, send it back to them, and move forward. And because I was responsible for providing direction for the composers, it forced me to, to crystallize what I wanted and needed to communicate. Yeah, and obviously music could uh, lend an emotional tone to, a, to the documentary as it can for any documentary. I mean, we, we know it can be a great asset, um, a character, so it sort of sets the scene, it sort of lights the scene, if you like, it offers moonlight, uh, mood lighting. Um, and I'm sure we're also aware of the dangers, the potential dangers of adding uh, music to a documentary. piece of music we did not use um, and I can't it still gets to me I can't it's too it's I love the composers so much but we didn't agree about this one theme they were super attached to it and I found it too saccharine and too syrupy and it's possible that we exchange words via Skype <laughs> I found myself yeah disagreeing with the cellist uh, yeah but we, we've worked with Nina Nina Perry uh, a lot at Falling Tree Productions and we knew what she could do we knew what she was capable of, and uh, we also know that music in a documentary can elevate the most banal thing into something much more poetic. Um, that it, it can turn a, a walk 
into a dance. It can turn a trip to Ikea into a ballet. Or it can represent chaos and confusion and lack of control. We just went to Ikea and I got a shelf and I did it without my six foot tall husband, soon to be ex-husband, with my sister, right? Yeah. Proving that, what does that prove? That we got the shelf, we can get the shelf. Turn right onto Bay Street. Okay. Well, I'm just impressed because I have to say- Continue on Bay Street for a half mile. When the movers came and took away all my furniture, which is an exaggeration, but they took away a lot of the bookcases, I was very frustrated because... I don't know what she said. Well, she'll reroute us if we're wrong. We just, we just got this, and how much do you think this thing weighs? A lot. <laughs> In 400 feet, turn right onto Lorraine Street. Turn right onto Lorraine Street. No, but I'm very impressed that we got this big... Continue on Bay Street for a half mile. Oh yeah, so it weighs about the size of a fifth grader, but it's more difficult to lift because it's dead weight. So now we're gonna try to get this dead fifth grader, well, that's a horrible thing. Now we're gonna try to get this box into my apartment. Oh, you have to open the trunk. Okay, wish us luck, universe, because this is a big, heavy box. That is probably the most highly produced uh, bit of the documentary, and it's one of my favorites. And it's uh, an awfully long way from the, the reels and reels of tears and tears on the raw, raw material from which we started. There was, yeah, there was a lot of material which didn't get played. It's one thing to let people hear me as I eat too many donuts um, because I was sad. My husband had suddenly walked out on me and that felt very reasonable. But there were other pieces of tape and some of them represented pretty dark and vulnerable and private moments. Um, and some of them still make me uncomfortable now. And there was one in particular that I am okay with now, but at the time I was pretty worried about including it. And initially I wanted to hold it back. So I'm getting ready to go to Adnan's office. I'm so nervous, I'm practically shaking. That could also be because I just had a lot of donuts today, but it's really scary. I'm in an elevator, I'm going up, I feel like, um, I feel like my heart is like about to pop out of my chest and recording these little memos is actually keeping me from totally losing it and going bananas. Sixth floor, seventh floor, he's on the ninth floor. Oh God, this sucks. So, this was a piece of tape, what you just heard. I, Adnan has disappeared. He's cut off all contact. I don't know why he's left. 
I haven't heard from him in weeks. He's left almost all of his possessions behind in our apartment. Um, and I wanted an answer. Um, I tried to send him some emails. I hadn't heard back. And I didn't know what else to do. <laughs> so I decided to go to his office. And I was really worried. I didn't want people to think that I was a stalker or crazy or nuts. So for the, for the sake of the story, of course, Sally appearing to be a bit nuts was great. It's great. Because uh, it offers a sort of dramatic tension. Um, but what's good for the story is not necessarily good for the uh, protagonist. Helen, I was not nuts. No, she wasn't nuts. But um, she was seeking, in a way, a form or a scaffold uh, for her story. In a way, she was trying to make something tangible from the intangible stuff of experience. And as producers, that's what we do. You know, we try to find form. We try to find the form within the lump, the mass of stuff, the soup. Just as Aunt Lucy says, structure, purpose, beauty, and meaning. Um, but the magic of storytelling, which uh, is another term that Aunt Lucy used, I mean, also, uh, I mean, it doesn't necessarily come easily. And uh, we were very clear that we had a very strong start to this story, pretty dramatic opening. And we had a certain amount of tension, and we had a lot of intimacy, but we didn't necessarily know where we were heading. You know, what was our destination? Um, this is real life, and I don't know if any of you have ever noticed, but real life can sometimes be a little messy and unexpected. And you are the author of your own life, right? Isn't that inconvenient? Wouldn't it be great to have like a team of writers? Sometimes I wish we had, I had one. Um, and so when we got to the ending, I got really, really stuck. And we're going to hear challenge number eight from Aunt Lucy in just a moment. Um, yeah, challenge eight is... Well, she's about, I think she's about to tell oh, us. Oh, should we, should we yeah, wait? Yeah, I think we should wait. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Some, well, this is narrative tension, you guys. Um, so <laughs> we tried having me record some endings. That totally flopped because originally uh, my, I'd been keeping a diary. And just to give you a sense of, of what it was like to make this switch, if you shut your eyes for a minute and imagine, I don't know, maybe you're in your high school bedroom or you're at home and you're sitting down to write a diary entry, right? Not so hard. Okay. All right. We're all there. Now imagine the diary entry you're writing is going to be broadcast for the entire United Kingdom. How are you feeling? Are you feeling like you want to be super honest? <laughs> Maybe not so much. Um, and I, so it was really hard. I could not sit down with my, my recorder and record these natural, uh, spontaneous diary entries. That did not work. And I hadn't found a resolution. I didn't have one to write about. And eventually I realized that was the ending, um, that this kind of deep, to the bone, bruising experience stays with you. Um, in this next clip, we hear a little bit um, of Aunt Lucy in which she encapsulates Challenge 8. What's wrong with sounding sad? What's wrong with appearing weak? What's wrong with appearing vulnerable? He did a horrible thing. And it's kind of like, do you want to tell a true and powerful story to the best of your ability, or do you want to look good? So now I'm going to serve apple, almonds, and cashews. Looks good. Yep. So challenge eight. Am I trying to tell a true and powerful story, or am I trying to look good? Thank you, Aunt Lucy. 
So what makes a personal story worth telling? Uh, perhaps you have to make that choice between telling a true and powerful story or wanting to look good. And that means looking outward from your own personal experience towards the public space in which that personal experience will resonate like an echo chamber. So finally, challenge nine. Uh, will your personal revelation, your confession, if you like, will that result in any kind of public benefit? Or is it merely a kind of personal catharsis? When I started recording this story, sometimes I did just want to go sit on the couch in the living room of someone else's life. But it's hard to always be an onlooker. A few weeks ago, I had to go interview a lifeguard. He said, bring your bathing suit. When I got to the ocean, I told him I was afraid. He asked me what of, and I said, everything. <laughs> Just me and two pieces of mango-colored polyester against the vast sea. He told me to turn sideways so the waves would break over me more easily, and he said, do you want me to watch you? At first, I was too embarrassed to say yes, but I finally did. So he stood there on the shore and watched, and I went in. It was still terrifying. It was not fun. But since then, I've been swimming a lot. The day I went to see my aunts, I got knocked over by a wave. I'd been at the beach that morning. I was just about to get out when I saw a big wave coming. I remembered what the lifeguard said, and I was just too tired to be afraid anymore. So I thought, I'm just going to let this wave knock me down. I'm probably going to get some water up my nose, but I'll end up back on shore. And that's exactly what happened. The wave knocked me over, I got water up my nose, but it did bring me back to shore. It was scary. It felt like the ocean would swallow me up and sweep me away. But good luck fighting the ocean, gritting your teeth and trying to white-knuckle it through against something looming and larger than you can be exhausting. I'm not a soldier. I'm more like a butterfly with a broken antenna. And I am not okay. And now I've said it, which makes this the most truthful story I've ever told, which also means it's both the most horrible and wonderful one. And that's how we ended. And Ellen, if you cry, I'm going to cry, so you can't cry. <laughs> um, so after the story aired on the BBC, we got a lot of responses on email, on Facebook, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, even the Times of London weighed in, and they had nice things to say. And in case you don't know, Alan explained to me, it's like the New York Times, but for the whole country, so sort of a big deal. Um, and people, I heard from people who had had their hearts broken, people who were in the depths of sadness and misery, uh, people who years later, after having their hearts broken, were so sad. People who years later um, were really happy. Um, but there was also another kind of message, like one I will never forget from the husband of a veterinarian who wrote to thank me because now he understood the grief his wife was dealing with when her patients died, cats and dogs. Um, the mother of a teenage son who had had his first heartbreak and was having a really hard time with it and was hospitalized, wrote to thank me 
um, for letting her understand the depths of her son's grief. A high school drama class in London, or sorry, not in London, in England, wrote to tell me they were making the story into a play, which I really think is the ultimate accolade. <laughs> um, all kinds of emails, and I, I feel like people found their own space in the story. For me, the same fundamental rule applies uh, to this or any personal story as to any other documentary we, we might be making as, as feature makers, is the, is the total greater than the sum of the parts? Is the raw tape enhanced by the addition of music, by the addition of scenes, by the addition of secondary voices, by the script? Because if it isn't, if the total isn't greater than the sum of the parts. We've got no right to be messing about with this stuff. And there is another dimension to this, of course, which is uh, to ask yourself, should I be telling a personal story? Uh, for me in particular, as a traditional news reporter, this was really something to grapple with. And there's a reason why uh, I chose to pitch it to Alan and the BBC. Um, the United Kingdom is an ocean away. They have their own time zone. <laughs> Although we do have the internet. That's true. Um, once you put something out there, you can't take it back. And there's no rush. Uh, so think about it. It's your story. It's not going anywhere. Um, and for context, I know this is something that maybe people don't want to hear. But when I started recording my audio diary, I did not set out to tell a story. It wasn't until you know a year had passed when I started to think about it. Um, and then don't forget, you also have to pitch your story. So after all of this, you'll still have to figure out how to persuade someone else that it's worth listening to and telling, which is really what's at the heart of our presentation today. So we'll just recap those uh, nine challenges, because we went to enormous trouble to bring them to you. Um, challenge number one, imagine yourself in a bar with friends or on the sofa drinking tea, if you're Sally. and. Uh, Ask yourself honestly whether your story is worth sharing. What's in it for the listener? Challenge number two. Is this story even a story? Does it have legs? Challenge three. Does it have specificity? Does it have a kind of uniqueness of detail and, and proximity to a subject? Challenge four. Is there a place for the listener? Challenge five. Does it pass... The me cast versus you cast, us, sorry, us cast test. Challenge six. Does this story work as a solo effort or does it need additional characters? Challenge seven. Do you have or need uh, a person who can reflect back to you how things actually are rather than how you imagine them to be and how you imagine you hear them? Challenge eight, with credit to Aunt Lucy, thank goodness for Aunt Lucy, am I trying to tell a true and powerful story or am I trying to look good? Challenge nine, will your personal revelation result in public benefit? Thank you for your patience. That was Sally Herships and Alan Hall speaking of the Third Coast International Audio Festival. Listen to more great sessions like this one over on the Third Coast Pocket Conference podcast. <laughs>